back up a little bit into chapter 21. We moved down into this, this section last week. <clears throat> I don't know if you remember me mentioning that about the fact that the original language has a way of uh, expressing the answer that they want from a question. Uh, sometimes they use a certain word in their question that expects a no answer. Sometimes they use a certain word that expects a yes answer. As I said before, we do that with inflection. We do that sometimes with word order or adding a word or two to our sentence. They chose that language to develop a little bit differently. <clears throat> but beginning in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So I remind you again as we pointed out as we studied last week that when we start looking at Paul's take on Abraham and you look at James's take on Abraham, seems to be that they are in conflict. They really are just complementing each other. They're both filling out the other. Um, and as mentioned last week, we need to always be careful to take faith and works in balance. But again, that, that does not mean they're equal. Just you know, simply means that they're in, in balance. It's sort of like ha in our lives, we have to balance work. We have to balance family. We have to balance um, church life. We have to balance our hobbies. doesn't mean they're all equal. It just means that we put them in proper perspective to one another. And so we have this, we, uh, in this verse 21, which I started with, uh, it, it expects one of those yes answers. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And James expected the yes answer. Now again, Paul using Abraham is talking about that initial salvation, and, and James is talking about the ongoing sanctification. A true believer should not be without works. A should, should, true believer should not be without fruit or actions or visible evidences that he has, he or she has faith. But our initially coming to Christ, our initially coming to God is obviously by grace alone and by faith alone. And so he says that there was something to be said about the fact that Abraham was obedient and offered Isaac on, his, on the altar, was willing to do that. And then verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And again, there's this, this combination, this proper balance perspective between the two, between initial salvation and the continued demonstration of that through our visible activity, our vis visible actions. And again, we find this word perfect. We've seen it a couple times already down through the context. We're going to see it again down in chapter 3. And again, I just remind you that it's the idea of being mature, being functional, being useful. So his faith came to the point where it was not only mature, but it was useful. It was something that was actually producing results in his everyday life and so forth. And there at the end of verse 23 is an expression that uh, we probably all come to and wondered how somebody like Abraham could be called a friend of God. And we are thankful in each of our lives that God does not focus on our failures, but God focuses on the strengths that he has developed in our lives are working out in our lives. And it says there that he was a friend of God. Uh, literally, it, talk, it says that he's a loved one of God. It, it is just based upon that word that 
we get the word Philadelphia, Phila, or Philadelphia from the lover brother. So, so Abraham was a friend of God or a loved one of God. And again, just pointed out, been pointing out along, but verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And again, you just have to view this again from that justification versus sanctification. Um, you know, you think about the two contrasts or two examples. We have the thief on the cross who um, believed in Christ at the last moments of his life. And uh, we have the very words of Christ that says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we know that he was justified. We know that he was saved, delivered, and that he, by God's grace, was taken off of that cross and taken into his heaven. So you don't expect much in the way of works from a thief. Didn't have any time to do them, except for the fact that he believed and did something that the other thief wasn't willing to do. That's a pretty marvelous work in itself. And then you contrast that with somebody like Paul, who had years and years of life after conversion to live for God and, uh, and continue to do that. Uh, Paul says that he, he ran the race, he finished the fight, he you know, finished the course and all those things because he had time to do so. And then James turns in verse 25, Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? In reflecting on this passage over, over time, over the last few weeks, and, and re- reading it and reading it, um, I, just, I just stopped to really realize and focus on the fact of how these two individuals that James picks out of the Old Testament to use were, had similar backgrounds in some ways. Um, Abram or Abraham being brought out of what was essentially um, a pagan country, a pagan country of worship, uh, and called to leave that country and, and follow God and become, of course, the founder of the Israelite nation. And here we have Rahab in the midst of this uh, horrible cultural setting in uh, Jericho. And God also takes and uses her in such a special way to do his purposes and deliver, provide deliverance for his people. Um, I don't know, just at first I was like, I was sort of like, wow, can you imagine just, how did Rahab? How did that Rahab know anything? How did he, she know anything to even, even believe or trust in, in uh, the God that was behind these two two men? Um, you know, what kind of a knowledge did she have? Uh, you know, but then I thought, you know, we at least I, sort of, you know, even though I know better theologically, I still sort of tend to think, you know, us Americans are we got to step up on things or we're ahead of the game or whatever we might say because of, you know, the background of our country and so forth. But it doesn't matter whether I was, I was brought up in a Christian home, but when I, at the age of 20 when the Lord uh, did save me, I was just as pagan as anybody else. I was just as lost as anybody else. I was just as deserving of hell as anybody else. And God, uh, through uh, different kinds of sets of circumstances brought me to the place where I came face to face with my need of Christ and um, by God's grace was brought out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. Even though I had all the advantages from a spiritual standpoint of growing up in a Christian home and going to church all the time, loving going to church, quite frankly, even though I was unsaved, it was a very 
important part of my life. I liked going and doing. But I wasn't saved. And God worked in there and grabbed my heart and changed my life. And, but he did the same thing for Abram there near Chaldea and just reached in there and, and uh, did a work in Abram's life and, and changed him. Did the same kind of a thing for Rahab. Um, and uh, just, just a marvelous indication. We don't know anything else out about Rahab except we know what we're told there in Hebrews. But um, God saved her, God used her in a very, very special way. I don't know all the significance of this, so you can think about it, because I've thought about it since I noted it. Um, When I was studying, one of the commentators noted that in Joshua, the two spies, what we refer to as two spies, were referred to just simply as two young men. In Hebrews, when they're referred to, they're referred to by the word spies. And here in James chapter 2, they're referred to as messengers. And... Uh, which is the same word as we get the word angel from, or angelos. Um, and uh, I don't know all the significance of that. For me, it was interesting that James chose to use the word messengers in the sense that they brought the message to Rahab. They, they brought the message of what God had done for his people, how he brought them out of Egypt, the, probably some kind of a summary of the wilderness journey and how God had t- cared for them and provided for them, the manna that he provided for them. Every day, the, the, you know, the water out of the rock and so forth. But he, they, they were, to Rahab, they were messengers. For the, for the Israelites, they were spies. They were sent in to spy to see what was happening in the city. But for, for Rahab and what ended up being Rahab's salvation, what ended up being Rahab's deliverance from her sin, they were messengers. They were God's messengers with the good news they brought her. So it was just... Something that, that was pointed out as I thought more about it, that's sort of where I ended up with why we have you know, basically three separate words used in the three different contexts in Joshua, Hebrews, and also here in James. So um, any thoughts about that or questions along the way? Um, again, this whole section just contrasting the fact that you just can't be just a professing Believer, you can't just say something with your mouth. You have to have a life that supports that. So then down in the very final verse, as he sort of wraps this section up, and it is, I think, a good chapter division here. For as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So it's just such a clear illustration. There's no question. We don't have soul. We don't have immaterial being. We don't have soul or spirit. There is no life. And faith without works is also that. That's that, just that useless, um, you know, when we, God finally chooses to take us home, there is not much use left to our, for our bodies, even if they were to, able to break it down, all the value of our, whatever chemistry is in our bodies, it still doesn't, uh, isn't very valuable, isn't very useful. Um, can you think about it? What if our, our loved ones could redeem us for some, for some coupon or, or whatever? I know that's absurd, absurd, but. So, justification by faith demonstrated by works. And then for today's, moving on into what was intended to be today's text, chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. I think these first two verses come together. 
are sort of stirred together, so I'm just going to stop with the reading of these two verses. Again, notice James' continual use of this reference of brothers. Uh, in chapter 2, we had saw brothers and sisters. Um, don't think he's making a distinction here. He just simply goes back to the more common uh, part of that and refers to to the, to the readers as his brothers. Um, he, he just is a common theme. He just, I don't know if it's because it's so early in the history of the church and the development of the church that he just wants to make sure that he establishes this, this close bond with them, this close relationship with them, but he continues ref, to refer to them as his, as his brothers. So we have here in this verse uh, a warning, a prohibition, um, something that is, again, uh, directed toward his brothers. Talking about teachers. Um, the culture of the day, um, teachers were well-respected. Um, there was, at least in the Greeks part of the society, the Greek part, part of the culture, there was a tendency for people to become self-appointed teachers. Now, the difference between them and what we would consider teachers in a biblical setting is that those people, when they became this sort of self-appointed, important person, they were actually developing their own teaching. Uh, Maybe they were borrowing from other people, putting things together, but they were sort of developing their own little discipleship school. They were developing their own little uh, following, shall we say. Now, obviously, for us, we are committed to teaching from one source and one source alone, and that is, the, that is the scripture. And so we are, you know, we, that is where we go. That is where we have our foundation is in, in the scripture. But for a teacher of the day, there, there could have been more of a tendency, tendency just to have been some popular person just spouting off whatever uh, wisdom they thought they had accumulated uh, along the way. So teachers were an interesting uh, setting that James is talking about here. Um, so that may be part of what he's warning them against, uh, warning them against here in this early church setting of trying to develop their own school of thought as they would, as they would consider it. Uh, or he may have simply just been alluding to what we more likely consider teachers, and that is somebody that they would have been teaching from the Old Testament, obviously, at this point, but people that were actually teaching from the Scripture or people that were developed in their own thought pattern. Nevertheless... These people that are set, uh, setting themselves up as a, some type of an authority, either I understand and I know the Old Testament better than you do, uh, even though I can tie what I find in the Old Testament to where we're at today, uh, or whether they were some type of a cultural teacher, it's sort of hard to, to know for exact sure, but he is warning them, saying, that, be careful, uh, all of you shouldn't rush over to, out to become a teacher along the way. Now, let me say that there, in my mind, there is a distinction between being a teacher and teaching. All of us teach in some way or the other. Parents teach every day, okay? One way or the other, parents are teaching. Uh, we as grandparents, some of us here have reached that great and glorious status in life, and some of you I know are even great, great grandparents, but we have the opportunity to teach. Okay, so you may not consider yourself a teacher. You may have never taught a class. You may never have had that privilege or opportunity, but you're teaching. You're teaching. You're teaching people by your example. You're teaching people by the word you say. And so there is a 
So I'm, all I'm saying is not all of us, all of you will ever be, all of you will ever be teachers, but you are all teaching. You can't escape the, the responsibility or the opportunity of being a teacher. That just comes with life. Uh, so don't sort of think of yourselves as not having that opportunity responsibility because you are going to be teaching one way or the other. Now I will tell you that, um, and it's not obviously the first time I've gone through this in my life, but uh, I will tell you as I got to this verse again and got really looking at it and, and considering it and meditating on it, you know, I, I asked myself the question again, why am I teaching? I mean, here I am still teaching. Why? Why am I still teaching? Um, I'm not sure right now. I can't do the math in front of you, but, you know, how long I've been doing this and one way or the other, started out teaching children. My main emphasis was, was teaching children, having good news clubs and that type of thing, reaching into neighborhoods with, with good news clubs and so forth. Um, moved to that someplace along the way to, to teaching adults. Um, why? Why do I do that? <coughs> and, and then I asked myself, why do I want to do that? Um, so, but, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, I answer those questions for myself. I'm not, you're not probably care what, what my answers are anyway, so you can answer, your que answer that from yourself, but uh, doing that way. And what he says to them is, we shall receive the stricter judgment, uh, or the, we, we are held to a higher standard. What, what is involved in the, the, uh, the stricter judgment or the higher standard? Why, why is that a part of this? John? Okay, the only thing I will the only thing I will say to you, James John, is I've never thought stood up here and thought I knew better than you did. Do uh, I may be better prepared on the subject on any given day than you are, but I don't ever think I've learned more from people sitting in the pew than I've ever learned at my desk or in my private study. So I just will say that just so you understand that that's not part of my approach, Charles. Okay, very good. You've all heard, I'm sure, the expression, practice what you preach. Okay, so uh, whether it's teaching or preaching, that, that does fit <coughs> along the way. So he, he warns them against that. It's a very strong prohibition, uh, the way he words the words, where he puts it together. This verse is very strong. Be careful, uh, you know, be, be careful where you're headed, be careful what you're doing, uh, be careful what direction you're at. And again, it doesn't matter what age you're, you're teaching. Uh, I think especially when uh, adults are teaching children, children start looking up at those adults and they see the slightest inconsistency in that adult's behavior or life. They are sometimes really shaken by that. And so, it, it, you know, it's not just a matter of standing before adult to adult. I think sometimes the adult to children is an even greater responsibility, even a greater uh, sense of, 
a judgment or standard of, of going together. Now, I said that um, I thought sort of verses 1 and 2 sort of go together. So he said, don't do this. Don't, you know, be careful. How many of you aspire to be a teacher? Um, be, be careful of that. <clears throat> for we all stumble, <coughs> excuse me, for we all stumble in many, many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So he's going to say, don't, be, don't become a t- rush into become a teacher because everybody's going to fail. None of us are perfect. None of us arrived at perfection. And so we're all going to do that. And so we need to be really even more careful about how we do that or what we're going to do. Now also here subtly in James's mind as he's headed in a direction with this particular letter, this particular address, uh, he's going to obviously begin to focus now on our verbal part of our life. Um, he talked about Abraham and some of the things that he did that were more avert, more outward. Uh, what Rahab did in hiding the spies obviously was that kind of a activity also. But here, James is beginning, going to begin to focus in our, uh, in our speech. And so he says, again, that if somebody's able to do that, uh, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Again, that word perfect, the same word, that mature, that functional person, the person is able to uh, control himself. Able also to bridle the whole body. Does, have, does anybody have a different word than the word bridle? Again, I'm reading from New King James. Okay, it's just again the simply the ability to rein in, uh, simply the ability to to control uh, what's happening. <clears throat> James sort of changes up a normal order here in the next section. Uh, typically, uh, as a teacher, a teacher sort of typically will put out a principle, and then attempt to illustrate that principle. In this particular situation, James starts with the two illustrations and then moves to the point that he's trying to make, makes, moves on to that. It, there's nothing wrong with it. it I think it's just a little interesting that he chooses to, to bring us th- through the illustration and then come to the particular point where uh, moving to. Uh, w- one of my teachers somewhere along the way um, I remember who it was, but it said that uh, illustrations are the, are the light that we allow into a lesson or a sermon. So, you know, we make a point, but what helps people understand that point or opens the window to that point is the illustration that we make in regards to that. And so James starts here in verse 3. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths so that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, though they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot deserves. So he chooses to use a bit uh, of the part of the bridle that uh, is used to control the horse, um, and he uses the rudder which is used to steer the direction of the ship. Um, what, what, does a, what does the bit in a horse's mouth need to really be functional, really work well? I know I'm not answering this question. I didn't ask a very good question. I realize that. So I'm, I'll stand here and see if I can do better. A bit, does a bit in the horse's mouth on its own do anything? No. What does it need, Amos? Needs an operator. Needs a rider or somebody sitting on the... The, on the buggy or whatever, right? 
on the seat. So uh, they all used to had this experience, right? Did, didn't you tell me before you started out with your family working with horses or mules? Did your family start out working with horses or mules when you were farming? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I remember you telling me that you did that. You started a tractor age. Okay. Okay. See, now he's older than I am, but my grandfather had horses when I first started. He, had, he, he mowed for years with horses and cultivated with horses. Even after he had tractors, he continued to use, use horses. But, yeah, they need, the, the, the bit needs someone to, to, to do that. And, and the thing I think is also important is that there had to, has to be, I think, a really a good relationship between the rider and the, and, the, uh, and, the, and the horse. The bit in itself, uh, without a relationship, isn't going to do much, isn't really going to accomplish a whole lot. So anyway, so you need a, so you need a bit. Um, I, again, though I say my grandfather did that, and I, I can remember that as a boy. Um, the thing I remember more as, as a growing up was when we would put the ring in the bull's nose, and uh, it was always interesting how... Uh, the bull could, would, would learn very quickly that uh, it needed to go wherever you were leading it if it had a, had a um, ring in its nose. Uh, when I was in Vietnam, I saw the people, the people actually kept their pigs in the house with them. At least, at least some of them, because I saw this happen. But they would put a hole through each ear of the pig, and then they would put a it was just a piece of string, a piece of twine. They would put that twine through those two holes in here and then tie it up, and, and they would just sort of lead that pig where they want to go. I was ho- hoping Isaac would be here so he, cause, uh, so he could learn about how to handle his pigs. But, uh, so, so, but James goes back to the bit, and he says, you know, that bit, not a very big thing. It probably weighs a few ounces. You've got a 1,000-pound horse minimum, and the bit controls the horse, okay, and then it, and then he talks about the the rudder uh, on the on the ship, and again, you need somebody that's skillful, you need somebody that that is knowledgeable to properly use the rudder. You know, I mean, you put most of us back there on that ship and have the rudder, and we'd probably run into the shore somewhere because we wouldn't ha- be very qualified to do it, and so. And I think there's, what I'm trying to say is I think that in this illustration, James starts with very simple, two very simple objects. He starts with, with the bit and in the horse's mouth, and he starts with the rudder on the ship. But I think that as his, even his original readers, as they would have thought about that, would have begun to understand that he was calling upon them as individuals to be in charge, to be in control. It wasn't just the bit that does the work. It isn't just the rudder that does the work. It's the individual behind them. And as he moves on to the tongue, we can't just let the tongue flap. We have to be in control of it. We have to use our experience, our knowledge, our determination, our will to control uh, the point where he's headed to, where he's going to. So he's talking about, talked about the bit, talked about the rudder. And um, then in verse 5, he says, even so, the tongue is a little mem- member and boasts great things. So he says, just like 
just like the bit, just like the rudder. The tongue's not very big, you know, compared to the rest of our body. It's not very big, but it can sure lead us down the wrong path. It can sure get us in trouble in a short amount of time, okay? Uh, what, how do we, what kind of idioms do we use about that? We, that we put our foot in our mouth, right? Uh, and do other things that are that way. So this, this tongue is a little member and boasts great things or, or causes great things. Now I think that James does a, um, maybe I'm wrong, I think he sort of does a hyperbole in the next section. Uh, he's sort of exaggerating for effect. Uh, he, it, I think that there is potential for more control of our tongues than James almost allows us to hope for in this next passage. Uh, I don't think it's quite as hopeless as James makes it out to be. Um, not that it's not difficult. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I think that he's really stretching, make, making this real, look feel like you're in even greater danger than, than you might be, than the circumstances might be. Even the illustration of fire that he uses, you know, I mean, fire under most, most, you know, the, the times that fire has been used safely, fire outnumber the times that fire has ended up in destruction, though destruction is terrible. But, it, but fire is used constructively much more than it is used destructively, even though he sort of emphasizes the destructive nature of fire in this next context. And so just a thought about that. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And when I read this verse, I always go to Smokey the Bear. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Smokey the Bear. There used to be lots of commercials on TV about Smokey the Bear. You know, one little spark in the forest, forest burns down. You know, so I always... Whatever reason, I always think about Smokey the Bear um, in, this, in this situation. And again, just as I've already alluded to, the whole idea that the fire, um, we use it for useful things much more than it is, ends up being destructive. Um, so it's, it's useful, it's important, but yes, it's dangerous. So I'd like to have you help me now for a few minutes. Um, I'd like somebody to look up Proverbs 10. Verses 8, 11, and 21. John? Proverbs 10, 8, 11, and 21. Somebody look up Proverbs 11, 9, please. Brenda? And somebody look up Proverbs chapter 12, verses 19 and 25. John Stone? <coughs> um, some of you look up Matthew 15, 10 through 20. I don't want you to read the passage. I, just, I want you to read the passage to yourself, and then when I, we get down to that point, I just want you to tell us what it, what's in it. You can read part of it if you want to. You just don't necessarily need to read all 10 verses. Um, so give everybody an opportunity. If you want to get back to Proverbs, then we can always probably all get from chapter to chapter while their verses are being read. I know we don't always do this, but I think this one work, will work this, way, this time. Proverbs chapter 10, beginning with verse 8, 11, and 21. John, please. 
Okay, so speaking and starting to begin to illustrate what is involved in our, with our mouths and so forth. Brenda, 11, 9, please. Okay, and the New King James said there, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. And then chapter 12, verses 19 and 25. John Stone, I think. Okay. And turn with me to Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. And I'm going to begin with verse 1, and I'm going to read several verses out of Proverbs 15. Um, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours pours forth foolishness. Down to verse 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Verse 5, a fool despises his father's instructions, but he who receives correction is prudent. So instructions coming by, by the mouth, coming verbally. Verse 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. Uh, verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So the one person doing things with his hands that are supposed to be good, uh, they're an abomination. The person who does something with their mouth in the way of prayer uh, is doing something positive. Over to verse 23. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season. How good is it? Verse 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but words of the pure are pleasant. And verse 28. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. And I will just say, and, I'm, and we're going to get to the Matthew. I didn't ask, never got somebody to volunteer to do Matthew 15, did I? Okay. Uh, do I get a volunteer now in the next two minutes? Amos, Matthew 15, and read verses 10 through 20, and just t- tell us what it says. Um, I don't know how many times in my life since I encountered it, which I'm not sure when that happened, but that, Roman, that Proverbs 15.1 has probably kept me out of trouble. Okay? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word or a grievous word stir up anger. Um, I really, really work really, really hard uh, at doing that. Um, and I will say to you that oftentimes it, is the thing that probably has saved my marriage is the fact that I've learned that it doesn't, it just times sometimes just to be quiet or sometimes just to say the be- something kind when you might want to think that you could add to the fire by, you could win the battle by adding to the fire and uh, usually that doesn't work, does it? And, and I know Beverly's done the same thing. I'm not, it's, it's just amazing that we're here because of her her grace and mercy to me. So, But Proverbs 15.1 has just been a major uh, principle in my life for many years and kept me out of a lot of trouble in a lot of different places, not just my marriage and my, and my life as a pastor and so forth. Uh, 
Amos, tell us a little bit about Matthew 15. Can you tell us? Okay. Okay. So, but, and what he says is that it's more important, you know, of what you say. The Pharisees were huge on eating things properly, eating the right things, eating the right things at the right time, da-da-da-da-da. And, and uh, Christ says, you know, yeah, that's all important, but what really is important is what comes off the tip of your tongue, not what, not what you put on the tip of your tongue, but what, you, what comes off the tip of your tongue. And back to James, please. Um, and uh, st- I'm still in verse 6, at least, in, in, in my mind. Um, and again, the tongue is a fire, a world, world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. So noted, noted as a world of right unrighteousness. Um, so... Part of that, part of iniquity you may have. I have iniqui- iniquity in the New King, King James, world of unrighteousness. It, the, the word world, it sort of is a, uh, it's a word that has a lot of different little meanings at times. This, this probably is that it, it's, it talks about something that's put in order, and this is probably just saying that our tongue can just make, just make a whole mess of everything. Um, and this is, I know, silly and obvious, but I was, as I was thinking about this passage again, I was thinking about the location of our tongue. Everything that comes into our bodies has to pass by that little physical thing. Although he's not emphasizing the physical part now, he's emphasizing the verbalization of our lives from it, but it all comes through that. Uh, notice that it defiles the whole body. It stains the whole body. The whole body is, is affected by what the tongue does. It, is, it sets on fire the course of nature, just really destructive. Uh, so, many, so many things have been destroyed by somebody's tongue. And it is set on fire, and I, and I have in the New King James, by hell. Uh, anybody have a different word that ends up that verse for you? It's, the, it's literally the word Gehenna. Uh, in the, for the Jewish mind, uh, it originally was the place where Outside of Jerusalem, where they the, the kings that, that were serving Moloch, uh, where they performed a human sacrifice, and then it went from being that place of human sacrifice in, in false god worship, to actually being for the um, Israelites, the, the the residents of Jerusalem, it was a place where their garbage was burned. Uh, so it's it was a place that 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 was constantly a the smell, the smoke, the, the fire, whatever was always there. And so our tongue uh, is set on fire. It is energized. Uh, it does, that word's not there, but I'm just trying to say it to you. It's energized by the very sources of Gehenna itself or by the sources of hell. And if you'll turn with me to John eight forty four. John 8, 44, uh, Christ speaking to these Jewish listeners who were so proud that they could trace their genealogy, their lineage back to Abraham, uh, says to them, 
you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And so uh, James basically is building off of the principle that's found here in James chapter 8, verse 44. Of course, James being written prior, previously, but nevertheless a principle that our corrupted speech, our destructive speech, our harmful speech our, uh, is, all comes back to the source of Satan. And so we need to be alerted and aware of that. And we will move on in James next week. Obviously, uh, sort of gotten slowed down here a little bit, but uh, and I'm not, really don't have, don't, I, I was reading through it again this morning, don't really have any place to speed up in our, to finalize our study together, but we will continue moving until we run out of time, and then you can study the rest of the book yourself. So let's talk to God. Thank you so much, Father, for giving us your word. Thank you for allowing it to penetrate our lives, change our lives. I pray that we will be active in our faith, that we will uh, produce fruit by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that others will see that we are different because of our relationship with Christ. I pray that we will be very uh, good guardians and stewards of our lips and our tongue, that we will say the right things, that we will use our tongue for edification, for encouragement, for comfort, and that we be very careful not to allow it to be a fire that sets those things all around us on fire, but help us to be wise and, and discreet and determined in the way we use our tongues. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Lord bless you.